one. Good evening. I'm your host, Elise Markham-Johns, and I'd like to welcome you to the April 6, 2021 edition of Learning Well on Edge Talk Radio. Learning Well is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we'd like to take this opportunity to thank them so very much for their continuing support. Our guest this evening is Dr. Anna McConville, who's an expert in the field of holistic physical therapy and chronic pain. And she has certifications in pain neuroscience, biofeedback, Pilates, Reiki, as well as stress management. Her focus is on helping her patients tap into the power of the mind-body connection in order to manage their pain. Our brains can change how we perceive pain and can continue to rewire and create new neural pathways to health and wellness. She blends Eastern and Western modalities to enable patients to deeply listen to their bodies and also learn what it feels like to be healthy and in balance with their lives. But before we launch into our conversation with Dr. McConville, I'd like to take just a few moments to let you know that this program would not be possible without the sponsorship of Normandale Community College's Integrative Health Education Center. And I also wanted to let you know that there are three different classes coming up soon at Normandale which will offer certificate programs. One of the certificate programs is the aromatherapy, is aromatherapy and starts on Monday evening, April 12th, and concludes on May 10th. The second is a holistic nutrition certificate series, which also begins on Monday evening, April 12th, and ends on June 7th. And the third is certificate, certificate program for EFT tapping. This series of classes will begin on Monday evening, May 3rd, and conclude on May 24th. If you would like more information about these or other classes and events at Normandale this spring and summer, we hope you'll call 952-358-8343, or you can simply email Normandale at ncal at normandale.edu. Or you can also visit the website, which is normandale.edu forward slash CE. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce this evening's guest, Dr. Anna McConville. Dr. McConville is a clinical doctor and holistic practitioner offering an integrative and holistic approach to wellness. For over 30 years, she's been working with a collaborative and integrative healthcare approach where she blends energy-based intuitive medicine with conventional physical therapy and body-mind health. Dr. McConville is a pain neuroscience educator certified as a holistic stress management educator and certified in heart math, myofascial release, cranial sacral therapy, and many more body-mind services that help patients understand and also tap into their body's natural inclination to heal. She works in partnership with the patients to create a personalized pain plan that allows them to navigate the world of persistent pain. She believes we are born with an amazing ability to default towards wellness since it's wired into our survival mechanism. She also believes that it's possible to learn the unique and personal language of our body, which can be empowering and life-changing. She's passionate about helping people live and come into balance with chronic pain, Lyme disease, sleep disorders, and stress-related illness. It's been her driving passion for knowledge that helps her and those she serves. In addition, Dr. McConville feels that it's essential to communicate and collaborate with other practitioners and welcomes the opportunity to blend in the work of acupuncturists, naturopaths, massage therapists, psychotherapists, physicians, as well as other caregivers. This will help her patients, she feels, create the most successful path to wellness. Dr. McConville, welcome so much. We're delighted you could be with us this evening. Thank you. It's just wonderful to be here. Well, we have a lot to cover. So <laughs> I'm going to just dive in because there are so many interesting ways that you approach your work with patients. And I just have to first ask you in the introduction of your book, you share a personal story about how you became interested in learning about pain management. And I, I hope you're okay sharing that with our listeners. I think they'd find it interesting. Yes. Um, I had sort of a different path in life when I was 18. I decided to go to an international mime and comedy school. So this was a uh, physical performing school that was 
uh, taught by Marcel Marceau's first partner. So I was very physical with acrobatics and, and slack rope and trapeze work. And I had been a dancer and actor before, but at some point my back started hurting me so bad that I couldn't even walk a block. So this was California. So I flew back to see my folks and they took me to a doctor who did an x-ray. This was at the U of M. And I thought that was the pinnacle of all things back then. And he said, well, honey, you know, you've got some back pain. You're a woman. You're just, you're young. So you'll just have to learn how to live with it. <sighs> so I, that just was devastating for me. So I went home and I just, I actually really prayed to die that night. I had no desire to live with that kind of pain and disability. Um, so of course, in all my drama, I did not die. And I went to the library the next day and got out all four books on holistic health. <laughs> Adele Davis, like Eat Right for Your Life, meditation, mindfulness, and exercise. So I started doing that. I changed my diet. I started doing some meditation and breathing, which was very unique to me. And I started getting better. I walked a block and then two. And before you knew it, I was flying back to California and proceeding on with my uh, street performing and busking and uh, traveled around the country with a performance group. Wow. That's a fascinating story. I, I, did you completely recover from the pain you were dealing with, or is it still something you have to deal with on a regular basis? Well, I only found out as an adult that I have Ehlers-Danlos, which is a connective tissue disorder. It's extremely painful. And I've had episodes throughout my life, which I think has driven me to all the work that I do because I don't like being in pain and I don't want to take medicine to mask my pain. I just, my, my approach is to get out of it and be healthy. So I've had episodic events, like a six week migraine. Uh, the only way I got out of that when I was doing home health was to read a humor book uh, in the car. So I'd pull over and I would read my little jokes and then my headache would abate and then I would go on my way. And I think at that point, a, Chinese, a traditional Chinese acupuncturist got me out of that with, I swear the herbs, the tea she made me drink had bones and I don't know, it's just vile, but I got better. It, it was probably Lyme disease at that point. It was, you know, they weren't really diagnosing it back then. But I've had lots of periods in which if they want to do surgery on my neck, I learned Pilates and became a studio uh, Pilates certified person. Um, so all of these different pain events in my life that would have been disabling pushed me to do meditation and biofeedback and Pilates and things that really enhanced my life. But, and fortunately I could share with my patients. I was so struck by when you said laughter, because I immediately thought of Norman Cousins book um, that he wrote, which I'm sure you're familiar with and the name of which I cannot recall for the life of me, <laughs> but it was such a fascinating story about his recovery, basically using laughter from, from a very debilitating and life-threatening disease. I suspect I read his book to get to that conclusion. Uh, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about the rest of your journey into the field of pain management. How did that unfold? Because you have, you have looked at and participated in so many different kinds of therapies and different different ways of healing the body over the years. And I think that would be a fascinating thing for our listeners to hear about. Uh, well, I started off as a circus performer doing uh, Commedia dell'arte work. And then from there, I, our troupe, I was gonna go to Italy with this really cool mime group, the four of us, and it fell apart. So there was nothing else to do but go to school. So I went to school and I fell in love with learning and I studied dietetics and biofeedback and I actually dropped the dietetics because I thought I didn't like um, organic chemistry for some reason. Um, and then I did massage therapy and uh, personalized fitness and I fell into uh, physical therapy. I just decided I wanted to do that to help people. And I did not know you couldn't be holistic and be a PT. So um, I was either gonna do acupuncture or PT and they let me in for some reason. And uh, off I went to um, really start my journey of helping people recover physically. Cause I'm very somatically inclined as a mime and a dancer, a performer. And I believe that when we embody, we really embrace who we are and we're able to move better. Um, so all of these, and I love learning. I 
will always be learning. I'm 62. I got my doctorate a few years back in pain neuroscience. And my father, who died at 94, was always learning new things. So I hope to follow his footsteps. And you, you have so many interesting certifications in various areas. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your path along that line? Yes, I um, have, you know, Pilates is one that saved me from having uh, necks uh, surgery. So they were trying to fuse my neck. I said, nope. So I learned Pilates and I went along the way and became, a, I had a Pilates studio in my private practice in North Carolina. And then I really needed to do some tissue work. So I learned my fascia release. And one of my employees was a Feldenkrais practitioner, which is movement therapy. And she went away for three months and she was a craniosacral therapist too. And so I learned that because I had a lot of patients who did well with that. And then I went on to do seven levels of it, um, which is powerful, powerful work. Um, so all of, I have craniosacral and visceral. And then I decided to be a Reiki master. So I did all my energy work and then I did healing touch. And in my family, there's a lot of energy healers in, of the 10 kids. Um, so I've combined that with the science of physical therapy and the sort of practical myofascial release, um, you know, structural work, movement therapy, it kind of makes for a nice rounded education. Yeah, that's amazing. But, you know, I always wonder, so how do you know which things to use for which people? I mean, there's so many therapies you can pull from. How, how do you accomplish that? Um, you know, the biggest, well, people with chronic pain have complex, really multidimensional um, things going on with them. And I like to look at what my first thing I ask people is, what do you think is wrong with you? And then what brings you joy? What are the things that bring you joy in your life? And I'm going to pair up something that's sustainable and something that they feel like they can do manage like biofeedback is great. And you can do that simply by doing breathing techniques. Um, if somebody likes needs stabilization, somebody with collagen disorders, I teach them Pilates. If they're a runner, I'm not a runner. Um, I might refer them out to a foot person, but I wanna teach them how to increase their endurance or their cardiovascular um, work. And for myofascial things, most people who have pain and you know tense muscles, I'm gonna, like a session with me, I might do a little cranial, a little Reiki, a little healing touch, maybe some balancing uh, visceral work and myofascial release and a joint mobilization. So you might get all of that in one. I love that approach. That's so interesting. So do many other people do what you do? I'm just curious. I mean, it's, it seems it, this would be a wonderful, well-rounded approach. And, and I would think be fabulous for most people to have the access to the kind of knowledge you have in so many different areas. Are many other people doing this kind of thing? Well, as a, as a PT, no. I mean, the sad thing is that um, PTs are making less and less money every year because of insurance issues and Medicare cutbacks. And a lot of um, companies are not able to afford to provide continuing education for um, their PTs or for their clientele. So um, for me, I, I probably spent, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars on my continuing ed, but my, I'm in service. I came here to serve. So you won't find that with a lot of folks. You might find bits and pieces and ideally, and you're seeing more um, facilities that are doing cash and fee for service because you're only really getting paid for 20 minutes of care, which I don't find care. That's not care to me. I don't think you can really assess a whole uh, person who's got complexities in that manner. One of the things that you do in your book, and uh, which I thought was fascinating, is you talk about some really interesting facts about chronic pain, including chronic pain by the numbers, which I was absolutely stunned by those numbers. Could you share some of that with our listeners? Yeah. Um, in the book, I mean, there was two different sets of numbers which didn't get corrected, but you can, <laughs> which of course that happens, but at one in five people in the US have chronic pain. Wow. And I think one in four, you know, internationally, 
it's a stunning number. That's a lot of people experience chronic pain and, you know, taking medications or not knowing what to do. It's, and we're living in a, um, a medical system that works with chronicity versus acute pain. And I don't know that that's sustainable. And we're seeing the problems now because of that. You know, it just stunned me when I learned, I learned a couple years ago from a physical therapist I was going to that, that they were cutting back on payments to physical therapists, which just seems so crazy because, you know, I would think physical therapists in the long run are going to be, it's going to be far more helpful to people. I mean, I, the first thing we did when we moved here was find a good physical therapist because we've learned that that makes so much sense and can be so helpful in so many ways. But I would think in the long run, it would be even more cost effective, but you know. You, you would think so. I actually Medicare mandates that people see PTs and PTs are not allowed to opt out of Medicare. Oh, so, really? Yes, because they know, they know by number that it's going to reduce the amount of surgeries and, yeah. long, you know, the long-term outcomes are better. Huh. It's, it's just kind of a funny situation. If we took all the insurance away, I think that would be a different story. And so, so I should ask just because I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering, so do you accept insurance in your practice because you cover so many different things or not? I don't. And it grieved me quite a bit about three years ago, I had lost $12,000 that year and insurance companies told me to go get that from my patients. They weren't going to pay me. And uh, the people I see, they don't come in with an expectation that they're going to pay me thousands of dollars. So I offer sliding scales. I also hook people up with people in network who have the very specific need. Say, mm -hmm. I might know a PT that does cranial work. I know a PT who does uh, movement therapy. So my broad base of knowledge helps me to guide people to a place in which they can get the care they need with insurance coverage. That's great. And you are located, we should mention, you are located in the Minneapolis area. Yes. Okay. Uh, so also, I don't think I mentioned in the intro the name of your book. Could you share that with us? <laughs> my book is called Mind Body Connection for Pain Management. Great. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I highly, highly recommend it. It's just, it's fascinating reading. Uh, I'm curious too, you hear so much about back pain and I'm, I'm sure the numbers are huge in terms of the people who suffer from back pain. Is that the most common pain that you hear about in your practice? Yes. And back pain, it, it is number one. And I've done a lot of research because of that. I, for me, neck pain is a good close second, mm. but I think everybody that I've seen has had some sort of back pain at some point. Yeah. And, and so are, are there things that we should just know for preventative measures with back pain that you could share with us? Yes. I think the, the biggest thing is to become aware of what your core is doing. I know there's a lot of uh, talk about core and that changes every year, but certainly we have 36 muscles of back and front top and bottom that attach to our pelvis. And our pelvis needs to be secure because the back muscles attach to your pelvis. And if you are all loosey goosey and letting your belly hang out and hunched over and not really moving your legs in a coordinated way, you're gonna make your muscles move inappropriately. And because of that, they get injured or perhaps you have a group of muscles that sort of take over and do all the work and they cause instability or imbalance. Uh, and the biggest th thing is to really become aware of your posture, how you sit, how you move and find a way yeah, to uh, prompt yourself throughout the day to remember to check in. And are there any exercises like two or three we should be doing on a regular basis to help prevent that you could recommend to us? Yes, uh, actually you can do one anytime. If you're sitting on a, in a, on a chair or sitting in a car, I like to have people do belly button crunches. <laughs> where you just pull your belly button in and imagine that you're buttoning it to your spine. And that works the deepest abdominal muscle, which is really our most important muscle. And it wraps around the back, kind of like a back brace, like you see at Home Depot or Menards. So if most people don't use that muscle, they're using the exterior muscles. So you just pull that in and hold it at a kegel if you're a woman and do some pelvic floor work with it and just pull it in and hold it, feel what that feels like and notice in the sensation that wraps around your back. And you could do that 
all day that you have to remember to do it, like setting an alarm on your phone or a little sticky note on your computer. That's one. Um, and laying down on the floor. Many of us don't do it. If we lay down on the floor and put our knees up on a footstool or on the couch and just feel the flattening and the releasing of your glute muscles, your back muscles, feeling like you can, you can breathe into your abdominal muscles. It's a really nice way to get acquainted with your body. We forget about our back because we're all front oriented. And those are so simple and easy. I mean, all of us can do that without any help. I mean, you do yes. so beautifully. Thank you. I'm doing the first one you mentioned right now. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I recently went through something that just sort of shocked me because it was totally unexpected. I had back spasms for the first time in my life, and I couldn't believe how painful they were. Fortunately, my daughter was staying with us at the time, and someone had, she works with all kinds of PR people in her work, and someone had sent her a tool called a Theragun, which provides a form of percussive therapy. And it created, you know, I thought at that point, I'll try anything. I mean, <laughs> why not? It created a wonderful sense of warmth, which I assume meant that it was helping blood flow to the various areas of my back, which really seemed to help. Uh, I'm just wondering, have you had experience with that type of therapy or do you recommend anything like that? Did I do something I shouldn't have done by using something like that? No, no, that was great. That's a really nice tool. Although just a caveat, you have to really rein in your need to like beat the heck out of your spasms. It's pretty <sighs> common. And you only know if you've done too much the next day when you get a little bruised. There's things like a theracane. I have always have theracanes around, which is uh, where you're pushing on the trigger point. And um, there, there's tennis balls. People have used, all, or, or people go into the back of a wall and try to get the knots out. But the premise is, is that our nerves are this living, breathing system. And what they need to feel good is space, movement, and blood flow. So when you're doing that rat-a-tat-tat with your percussive therapy, you're um, providing this, um, you're increasing the heat in that area, you're increasing the blood flow, so you're oxygenating that muscle spasm, and you're actually creating movement to the tissue. So you're allowing that nerve to have a little bit more space, and, it, and your body is like, oh, I can let go of that now, thank you. It, I, I don't know how I could have gotten through that without that. It was just an amazing tool. Um, I was really impressed. Uh, the first chapter in your book, Mind-Body Connection for Pain Management, focuses on using the mind-body connection to manage pain. Could you share a little bit with us about the science behind that? How, how does that actually work? Well, the... Mind-body connection was back in the days of Hippocrates. You know, people used, they were really all about mind-body. The spiritual connection was very integral. And then along came, I think it was Isaac Newton in the 1700s, discovered bacteria and antibiotics. And they thought, oh my gosh, this is what causes sickness. So it was all about the pills and the bacteria. And then they gave the church the spirit in the brain and they took on the body. So it was a very separate uh, uh, sequestered type of thing. So the Pope had the pineal gland and all the spiritual things and the doctors got to have the physical body. So it was very binary. And then it's probably not until the 60s, 50s and 60s where they started um, working on integrating mind-body medicine. But even in 19, like World War II, uh, there was a surgeon on the battlefield who ran out of morphine and he used saline solution instead of morphine, not telling these soldiers who had limbs lost that they were getting saline versus morphine. And these soldiers had the same um, analgesic effect from the saline as it would have been morphine. So that was like the sort of like, wait a second, what is this placebo thing? What is our mind doing to our body? So it started rising up slowly um, and, but, but even now there's a lot of pushback, you know, there's a lot of money made in the pharmaceutical, um, realm with, uh, purchasing drugs over doing actual things. I, I don't know where I read this, but I remember I was just so stunned by this study that was done where they, you know, hooked up all kinds of instruments to someone in the hospital, to a, a guy who was quite ill 
um, who had been a runner and they said, imagine running. And the whole system, his whole system reacted as if he were actually running, which I thought was just, just a fascinating study. Um, it is rather incredible. And my, my husband, who is a total skeptic, <laughs> he's sitting right here, I probably shouldn't say that, but he, I, I remember at one point we were talking about visualization and I had a couple of books on that topic and he had this ongoing issue with warts on his feet and you know, went to a podiatrist had all kinds of burning sense, all kinds of things done to those warts, and they kept coming back. And finally, they disappeared. And he, I think he rather sheepishly admitted to me <laughs> that he had tried visualizing like a fight. He, he loves jets and, and airplanes. So he tried visualizing a fighter jet just sort of bombarding his warts, and they disappeared. So, it, I mean, it was a really, it is amazing what our, our minds can do. Yes. You know, there's such great research now with functional MRI and using visualization. Back when I was doing biofeedback, I was intrigued by the whole visualization aspect of getting rid of pain. And um, now they can prove it with really you know, doing functional MRI and looking at the brain with visualizing, um, you know, releasing pain or softening muscles, doing activities. But there's a part of pain neuroscience. I mean, there's pain neuroscience is really cool nowadays. They are um, like graded motor imagery. So, so you've had surgery. I've had a personal experience with a, a shoulder replacement. I just imagined that my shoulder was lifting up and, not, and it wasn't, it was still, it was fresh two days out. I started with imagining that I was kayaking and it created tremendous pain. So my visualizing kayaking was so such a schism with a brand new shoulder replacement. So I backed it off and I just imagined that I was raising my arm and that worked. So we can re-neuralize and repattern our brain just by visualizing. Oh, that's, that's such a fascinating topic. You know, in your book, you also talk about the importance of identifying the different types of pain. Uh, could you share what those are with us and how we identify them? We have nerve pain and tissue pain. So nerve pain is stabbing, sharp, um, uh, burning, poker hot. Whereas tissue pain is either acute or chronic. Um, so that'll be bone and organ and tendon and ligament. So if you're experiencing pain and you feel like somebody's got a blowtorch, that's gonna be nerve pain. Uh, if you've got this dull, aching, throbbing, that's very likely tissue pain. I'm curious too, if, if you're unsure what is causing the pain, and I'm sure this has happened to a lot of people where you, you go, you undergo lots of tests, you go to lots of different doctors, and you haven't been able to specifically identify the cause of the pain. Um, where do you go from there? Well, that's kind of my patient population. <laughs> Come I in and I would lead into that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me, I'm a detective when I work with people. I want to know everything. Um, and I, you know, I've had people who their neck didn't clear up and I found out that they were in an accident leaving their abusive ex's house and got a whiplash and it was tied into an emotional thing or somebody might be taking on others emotions and they don't know it. Um, but a lot of it, you know, you so important to get out of the red flags. Like, is this killing me? Am I in danger? And I believe that we have a personal wisdom about really what's going on. And if you can sit with that and learn how to just sit with your body and ask yourself, I, most of what I know, I ask people a question on my intake is what do you think is wrong with you? And I get a lot of good information that maybe they didn't tell their doctor who has 10 minutes or they didn't think about it. Um, and it's surprising that it could be that there's mold in their bedroom that wasn't talked about and that's mm -hmm. causing inflammation of the lungs and then they can't breathe and they're on asthma medications, which giving them headaches. Um, so there is no cookbook way to do this, which is why I think when you're uh, sleuthing chronic pain, it really takes time. What, what do you feel are the most difficult types of pain for people to deal with? Uh, I think migraine headache for sure. 
Um, and Ehlers-Danlos is connective tissue pain, which has POTS, um, this uh, uh, um, orthostatic hypotension where people just faint. Um, and they also have their joints fall out of place. They have, they sublux all the time. So it's a chronic pain and an acute pain all together. Very hard to maintain that because it's not chronic pain, but they're lumped into chronic pain, but they're having constant micro tears of their tissue um, and subluxing of joints. And it's, but, but if you learn how to wrangle it, it's doable, but still, I think it's one of the toughest ones to deal with. Meditation was the first intervention that you tried to relieve your own pain, but meditation is so such a difficult practice for so many of us. And how did you first develop a meditation practice? And what do you recommend for patients uh, in terms of a meditation practice, if you think it might benefit them? How, how do people get into it? If it seems a little overwhelming to them or a little, little too unnerving? Yeah, most people do not select that from my choices of what to do. Yeah. However, I'm a very practical person. I am. I don't like things to be difficult. I just want it to be as easy as possible. So I'm really a big fan of guided meditation. And especially like there's the Monroe Institute, um, um, not coming up with the right one, but just a guided meditation that adds a binaural beat to it that allows your brain waves to move down into alpha or theta waves, which are more relaxing. The side effect is your body relaxes. But oftentimes we can't get enough space in our life to actually settle. And by listening to something, it allows you to just move into your body space and learn what it's like to sit still for five minutes. Mm. And it could be counted breath or visual breath. And everybody has a different way they want to approach it. A lot of people can't visualize, so they'll need an activity to move into quietness. Yeah, I, I've only found that I can do visualization where I do some kind of guided imagery for relaxation that <laughs> otherwise my mind is just jumping everywhere. <laughs> I, um, what are the various pain management techniques that you cover in the book? Let's talk a little bit about that. We talk about uh, reframing, which is really about um, changing your bias, your binoculars of how you view your pain. So Rick Hansen, who's a neurological biologist, a neurobiologist, talks about a negativity bias that we all have. And we have Velcro for negativity and Teflon for positivity. So we have to wire in positive things that create dopamine or an, or an effect that makes us wanna do something again and again. Um, so that's a reframing. So reframe how you look at pain, how you look at your body. And there's a lot of nice, cool techniques that are pretty easy to just start teaching you about what are your words doing for you? When somebody says you have horrible degenerative discs, you're the spine of a 90 year old, that feels pretty bad. And if somebody were to say, you know, you've got some wrinkles on the inside of your spine that are making your discs kind of more soft, like your skin, it's not really painful, but they're all wrinkled and desiccated. That sounds a lot better than you're looking like a 90 year old inside. <laughs> really? Um, and, and go ahead. Okay, so, and then I have uh, mindfulness and meditation, breathing, breath work, and uh, Hatha yoga or okay. restorative yoga. And is there one of those that you feel is sort of the easiest route for most people to take or does it just vary tremendously from person to person? You know, for me, breath is the basics of all of them. It unites body and spirit, I think. And just learning how to focus on how you breathe is a powerful tool. And I think it connects all of the different modalities that I talk about, even reframing. Um, yeah, let's, as long as you mention reframing, let's talk a little bit about that. Retraining or reframing the brain. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works and maybe do you could share with us some examples of patients that you've worked with that that's helped or how it's helped? You know, I think a lot of the work I do with people who have negative body images or pain, um, they're angry at their pain, and it's about reframing your relationship with your pain and the words that you use and coming in, because I think a lot of work with pain and is surrender and acceptance. And if you are saying stupid body, stupid elbow, this and that, 
your brain remembers that and kindness is really key for being able to uh, unlock that place to start looking at things with a different light and just giving yourself permission just for now. Maybe I'll just put down this, I hate my body place and I'll put up a, a pair of glasses that says, you know, you're okay. Uh, I, I'm okay with where you are and I love you. And it could be as simple as I'm safe, uh, I'm healing, I am loved. Uh, and you, you also talk about mindfulness as, a, as another key component in dealing with pain. And how, how would you define mindfulness? And again, could you share with us maybe an exercise we might learn so we can be more mindful? Mindfulness is often mistaken for meditation, which is a practice. Mindfulness is a way of being and is a, is a way of paying attention. And I think it's just, it's noticing and becoming aware of the moment that you're in versus the moment that's coming up. And to be a, a real easy one is to step outside and just listen, be attentive, not think about the birds, but listen for birds. And as soon as a bird song enters into your ears, just listen and pay attention. Don't make a, a judgment about what that is. It's paying attention to a single thing without judgment. So when you're noticing one bird, you may start hearing several more or even 15 more that were always there, but you just stopped in to notice. And noticing changes things because energy follows thought. So if you're noticing good things, you're going to start noticing more positive things around you. I love that one because you're out in nature with, with, with this, which is such a healing thing to begin with. Uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to be doing that one on my walks. I love that. Um, chapter four is titled A Deeper Connection. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you actually mean by this? And, and how can that help us deal with our pain? The deeper connection is just going deeper into the meditation aspect of, of healing chronic pain. And this is more organized um, when you actually set up a practice to deal with your, your chronic pain, your hip, your arm, your shoulder. So you're making a commitment to a practice of either walking meditation, guided meditation. You're setting aside a time that, okay, I'm going to step out of my world and I'm going to do this thing. Whereas with mindfulness, it's, you could just do this throughout your life. Oh, you eat your cereal, drink your coffee. But meditation is when you sit down and do the practice. And you give, you have a wonderful story in that chapter about a client you work with by the name of John. Can you tell us a little bit about John's journey? Yeah, John, you know, it's surprising that John chose meditation um, <laughs> to, to help him out. He was a tool and die maker and he, um, was injured on the job and he could not work and they were trying to train him up for something else, but his job was his family. So he did not want to leave his job. So I worked with him and this guy was super detailed oriented. He, he actually did a journal. He wrote down everything he ate, every, how he felt when he ate and what he was thinking about, what he was doing when he had pain. This guy just had these beautiful, complex, organized graphs that he made. I thought, oh my gosh, I could never do that. But he was able to sit down and start meditating. He did a guided meditation. He sat with it and he organized it. He wrote how he felt. And it proved to him that if he did this practice, he could feel better. And he actually made wiser food choices and food was part of his pain. He had a real inflammatory diet. And so he changed his diet, his relationship with his wife, uh, and his and he sat and meditated and he started working more and more and adding more meditation and then he was back to work so everything in his life improved because he sat down and organized all of the things in his life that were kind of not right huh oh interesting uh, and you share many different kinds of exercises in this chapter that can help us reach a deeper connection which I thought some of them were fascinating could you share a couple of those with us uh, my most favorite is a zoom out, zoom in meditation, and it can be as quick as three minutes or as long as an hour, like, but I, I mean, a lot of people do not sit for an hour, but it is really about bringing your, you just begin with the breath and you, you know, if you're looking at a pain, you zoom into that pain, feel that pain, and then zoom out to your body, 
out beyond your body, out beyond the house, out beyond your state, out beyond the country. And it minimizes that intense focus on the pain and it drops your attention, you know, brings your attention really wide. So you're zooming in and zooming out and it kind of trains your attention to release from being hyper-focused on pain. Uh, you could do that with an emotion, with grief, um, zooming in and zooming out. Um, that to me, I feel is a really flexible meditation that you actually don't have to do guided with. Uh, and my other favorite is purposeful. It's a walking meditation where you are just purposefully walking and noticing as you place your foot, noticing how your knee aligns over your foot and your hip is over your knee and your pelvis is supporting your spine. And it's a very purposeful walk and it brings you into nature, which I think is healing in itself. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a mindful meditation in, in that respect in which you are moving and you're aware of how you're moving and you're moving in nature. So it's very multifaceted, which I think actually brings you more profound relaxation. Mm. And learning to breathe with conscious awareness is also a tool you focus on. I think this is for a lot of us, this is a really difficult thing to do. <laughs> yes. What exactly do you mean by this? And could you give us maybe one way we can do this? Okay. Well, most people don't really breathe correctly. We breathe upper chest and um, it's just, you know, especially we're taught to suck in our gut. We're really busy and we get stressed and we just sort of puff and breathe and we don't really fill our, all our lungs up. And what we don't use gets excluded. The brain stops thinking it's even there anymore. So just basic putting your hand on your belly, like a baby or a pet does, they diaphragmatically breathe. So you allow your hand to move up as you breathe in, and then your hand moves back down, your, your belly comes back to your spine as you exhale. So when you breathe deep into your lungs, you're actually um, um, waking up the parasympathetic um, part of your body. Your system is in the lower lung. That parasympathetic receptors are in your lower lungs. So if you breathe deeply, you are calming yourself. If you breathe shallow, your sympathetic receptors are up there. So it kind of causes you to be in that fight or flight. So when you have asthma or poor breathing, it can actually cause you to be more anxious. So just taking in 10 deep breaths through your diaphragm and out. So even counted breath in for four, hold for seven, out for eight. That's a very common breathing metric. And it calms the nervous system. Now, is this true? I remember an exercise from years ago that someone told me about where if you breathe out longer than you breathe in, it can help you relax and help with sleep. Is that true? It is true. Okay. So when you are, a lot of people don't breathe out long enough and there's excess carbon dioxide left in the body or, and so, but by holding your breath, you're actually allowing the oxygen exchange to happen. And then exhaling a lot of that old air out of your lungs allows them to fully deflate. So when you're ready to breathe in, there's an automatic reflex that is unconscious that allows you to really fill up your lungs, get into the parasympathetic mode, and it just helps your brain waves to drop down into theta and then delta. Do you run across a lot of people with sleep disorders? I mean, I would think that's pretty pervasive. Absolutely. I'm actually a sleep coach as well. Because okay. sleep is, impacts every part of our system. And if we're not sleeping well, we have cardiovascular effects, dementia, um, uh, health effects, fertility effects. So just proper sleep. And a, most, a lot of people can't stay. There's five different types of sleep. And there is an app coming out with the company that I work for. Sleep. It's called... Um, um, it's Sleep Performance Institute, and I'm, I'm, I forgot the app name, but it's coming out, could be Dreaming of Sleep, um, and it identifies five different sleep problems that people have, and it goes deep in how to correct those. So I have to ask, for the sake of all of my friends who are older like I am, <laughs> The, what happens, I think, to many of us is we have to get up during the night so much more often to go to the bathroom. So is there a way to deal with that? Or not? I mean, do you just accept that, that that's, you know, what happens and not much well, you can do about it? 
it depends on the frequency. You know, waking up three times a night is normal. That's a oh, normal thing. Yeah, a lot of people feel really re re reassured when they hear that. Yeah, That's a normal behavior. To and if you can contain your um, quiet state while you go to the bathroom that's great some people stop drinking fluids late at night that's another way to restrict that but just not allowing yourself to be thinking about things like if you start making a plan if you can squelch that down and have like what I do is I go to I think about forest or birch trees or I'm writing a kid's book so I think about the characters um, if I start planning something I have to put that away because I won't get back to sleep right yeah. away yeah yeah, that, so true, so true. You you have so many interesting stories in your book too, which, and I want to touch on, because I always think those are fascinating for people. There's another one you talk about, Richie, uh, a patient that you talk about in the learning to breathe mm -hmm. chapter, I believe. Can you share a little bit about Richie, Richie's story with us? That was a cool, cool guy. He was, um, he had a brain defect when he was born. So he's like age eight-ish emotionally. And his neurologist sent him to me for his migraine headaches. I'm like, what do I do for that? Um, and they went away when he read the Bible. So I thought, what? So I thought I didn't, you know, I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I was doing heart math, a lot of heart math at the time, which is a biofeedback that is just, it's six breaths, breathing in, breathing out with a feeling of care or appreciation or uh, pride. And it's an emotional thing about really add that emotional component and it changes everything in you. And so I started him off with that and I paired him up reading the Bible while he was doing heart math and he was set up to these a system where you could see green lights or red lights. Green light meant coherent where you're balancing sympathetic and parasympathetic. And so when he re read his Bible and if he could create a green light, his brain would start putting those two together didn't take him very long before he could just think of do what he called he said put his hand on his heart he says i'm going to do my heart breathing and he did his heart breathing and he could remember the feeling he had when he read the bible so he was able to pair that up and recreate that sensation throughout his day and you know a little late i talked to his mom later and he was able to move out into a group home because his headaches were managed. And he oh, actually wow. was much calmer. It was really uh, a, a novel. I mean, I did not plan this, so it really turned out well. Huh. Great job. You know, you talked about earlier with one of your case studies, diet and the impact that that can make. And I also I remember reading something at some point around some work that was done with prisoners uh, where they changed the diet and the rate of violence dropped dramatically. What, what, what can you tell us about the importance of diet? I think that's important for us to hear. You know, diet, I think diet is like really key. We have um, a lot of foods that we eat with high in sugar, high in additives. They actually, there's there's a lot of science now to, to show what it does to our brains and, you know, increasing anxiety and anger and, and getting people more in their frontal lobes and not into their feeling state. So having a healthy diet that's not got a lot of additives and preservatives I think is really key and making sure eat a rainbow of foods. So you have all the micronutrients because things like copper and magnesium or manganese and those kind of things were not in some of the prisoners diets, I believe. And um, uh, zinc, uh, vitamin D, those are so essential for cognitive behavior and schizophrenia and anger. So even just small micronutrients can make a huge difference. Oh, so interesting. I know um, I notice a whole big difference in how I react to things based on what food I've been eating. If I've eaten some processed, more processed food, I tend to react more strongly and can more easily sort of uh, get unnerved by things. I mean, it just, it's, it's just amazing to me. <laughs> well, food, yeah. Food is medicine. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, absolutely. And, do you, do you mind telling us one more story? I love Joni's story as well. She was what she was dealing with and how you helped her. It's another another one you talk about in your book. Um, I think that was in the easy resistance chapter. Oh, oh, Joni. Yeah, she had Ehler-Danlos, the type of thing I deal with. And she was 
she is, she's just hilarious. And she makes a lot of jokes, but she hated her body. She absolutely hated her body. And she just needed to find a way to um, get out of some pain because she has tons of surgery. Pain was chronic. She was not really able to hold a full-time job. So I taught her restorative yoga of how to just be in her body that wasn't hurting her. And for her, that was a profound change. Wow. There are so many things that we could get into and we have so little time left, unfortunately, but just quickly, um, how, how, to, how do people reach you? How do they get in touch with you? Uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you? They can go to my website, annamaconville.com, and I have a lot of information there and new programs that I'm starting and new communities that are coming up as well. And they can also find me on, um, um, I can't remember the app, sorry. That's okay, I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> and your book is amazing. Highly thank you. recommend that as well to people. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McConville. We really appreciate it. Um, and you've just given us so much good food for thought. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Dr. McConville has been incredibly busy. She has an incredible schedule and I just am so grateful she could be with us this evening. And I also wanna thank Norma Dale also as well for making sure that we can continue with these programs. But before we close out this evening, I'd like to take just a few minutes to let you know about some of our guests on future editions of Learning Well. We have some really wonderfully, highly respected prominent guests who will be coming our way. And next month, I'm really looking forward to our conversation with someone you may already be familiar with. He's been a previous guest on our show, Richard Leiter. He'll be with us on May 4th. In addition to writing 11 books, including The Power of Purpose and two other bestsellers, Richard is also a coach and a keynote speaker, and he's really pioneered the way we answer the question, why do you get up in the morning? His latest book, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old?, makes the case for the value of purposeful aging. Uh, Dr. Lindsay Berkson will be our guest on June 1st. She is a thought leader in functional medicine with an emphasis on hormones, nutrition, digestion, and intimacy. And for years, she was ill with cancers and serious health issues. And while writing one of her first breakthrough books on endocrine disruption, she discovered she was the victim of the very phenomena she was explaining in her book and was able to formulate her own medication to stop the tumor growth. So she is not only able to connect the dots of science, but she can also offer, offer real hope due to her own personal experiences. And then in July, our July 6th guest will be Dr. Vivian Brown. She's a family physician with a very busy practice in Toronto, Canada. She's also a tireless advocate on a national and international scale for the need to raise awareness about women's health issues, preventative health care, as well as healthy aging. And her most recent book, published this past February, is The New Woman's Guide to Healthy Aging, Eight Proven Ways to Keep You Vibrant, Happy, and Strong. And we're also really fortunate that our Learning Well programs are archived. So we hope you'll explore past programs with many leaders in the field. We want to close tonight by thanking our guest, Dr. Anna McConville and the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale. And I'd like to thank you also for being with us this evening. I hope you can be with us again next Tuesday, or Tuesday, May 4th, for our conversation with Richard Leiter. And until then, Good evening and stay well.